0: So he goes out to the big dumpster, and I can hear him throw a pillowcase filled with dirty dishes into the dumpster. And that's, that was his solution to this mess that he had in his
1: apartment. I'm Matthew Philp.
2: I'm Elizabeth
3: Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier.
1: And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique.
2: We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve
3: into some dad stuff. It's a new tribute to a man who had one of the most colorful obits in recent memory. His name is Uncle Bunky. His real name is Randall Jacobs. He died in May at the age of 65, and the obit written by his nephew calls Jacobs a living, breathing, hang-loose sign who spent his days and nights in dodgy establishments, his advice to his loved ones, do what bunky say, not what bunky do. <laughs> the old bit was shared around the world. In lieu of flowers, the old bit...
1: On this week's episode of Tell Me About Your Father, my co-hosts Aaron Hosier and Elizabeth Thompson talked to New York-based artist and gallerist Chris Santa Maria about his late, larger-than-life uncle, Randall Jacobs, who died on May 4th, 2020, at 65 in Phoenix, Arizona. Jacobs was known to his nephew, and now to the world, as Uncle Bunky. Jacobs' obituary, written by Santa Maria and published in the midst of a mounting pandemic and political upheaval, instantly charmed and resonated with readers, and was soon everywhere on Twitter, Reddit, and on morning news shows. Everyone, it seemed, had or wanted an Uncle Bunky of their own. The obituary told the story of a part-time ski bum, part-time desert rat, who burned the candle at both ends, A living, breathing, hang-loose sign, who drank too much, smoked too much pot, drove too fast, and had loose beliefs around whether children should be allowed to play with firearms for fun. The obituary ended with the request that, instead of sending flowers, those reading should pay someone's open bar tab in Bunky's honour. Listen as Santa Maria describes his relationship with his uncle, who he adored, the difficulty his family members had with accepting Bunky for who he was, and his own bittersweet reckoning with the fact that the very thing the internet seized on and celebrated, that Bunky lived fast and hard on his own terms, is the same reason why he's not still here with a nephew who deeply misses him.
0: His full name was Randall Jacobs. He's my mom's brother. She was the youngest of three, so he was the middle child. He was like the horseshoe theory of a father figure. He was so much of an uncle that he came back around to be a little bit of a father figure. If you're lucky enough to have an uncle or an aunt that is capable of taking you to the side and saying something like, don't tell your parents that we did this. (laughs) And then you do something that if you get caught, you'll be in trouble. The secret is easy to keep because you don't want to take both of you down. He was very much that kind of uncle for me. Uh, He was born in Denver, but they moved to Arizona, Scottsdale specifically, uh, when he was young, but he very much used Phoenix and the Rocky Mountains as a back and forth, a binary locale for his entire life. He lived in Los Angeles for a little while in Anaheim, but that was mostly based off of a marriage that he had that fell apart very quickly. So once that was over, he came back to Phoenix and lived a lot of his time in, in Telluride, Colorado.
3: Randall Jacobs of Phoenix died at age 65, having lived a life that would have sent a lesser man to his grave decades earlier. Mm -hmm. His friends called him RJ, but to his family, he was uncle Bunky, AKA the bunkster. He told his last joke, which cannot be printed here on May 4th, 2020. Where was this first um, published?
0: I wrote it for the Arizona Republic and for the Telluride Daily Planet. It was sort of known even before he passed away that I would be the one to write his obituary. I wrote a draft that was a lot longer and it was a little too insane and I sent it to a two friends who knew my Uncle Bunky and who would come with me up to tell you right for road trips and stuff like that where we would be staying with him in a hobo encampment up the river. My uncle just calls and he's like, you got to get up here, man. The snow is fucking incredible, dude. You're going to hit that powder and it's going to be like, you're just going to have like a warm rack wrapped around you. That was the type of shit that he would taunt us with. And so we'd take a road trip up there and, and we'd show up at o'bannon's bar which is like this old absolute shithole you walk down into the basement the wood it's got that old divy smell hops and and stale beer and maybe a little bit of bile in the corner he'd pop out of there and it's like 3 p.m or he's clearly been there since 10 a.m or something and he's all over the place he probably did such a fat rail right before we showed up and he comes out and he's like all right, let me take you to your camp spot. And so he takes us, and then he's got, he's like, it's a shitty tent. And he just says, all right, that's your spot right over there. And we're looking around and it's, there's a bunch of hobos and there's a guy playing a, a banjo and there's another dude whittling a stick. And there's like another woman who's clearly like off her rocker yelling. I'm like I'm basically a domestic dispute is unfolding. And we're, we're these little white kids straight from Scottsdale, Arizona. I mean, Scottsdale is like such a, A sheltered and privileged place. There's swimming pools and barbecues and you can go to school and that's it. And then you've got Uncle Bunky, who you've never even seen a movie about it. If You show up and he's like, what do you guys need? You guys need some coke? You guys need some LSD? You guys need some weed or whatever? And we're just like, no, man, we're we're good, dude. We're we're just going to come out here and hang out with you. And so you know, it was insane. These hobos, they were grifters. I mean, they were like, they we brought food and I showed up one day after going on a hike to a waterfall because Bunky had to go work up. Uh, and we come back and all the food in our cooler was gone and we had no money. We were broke. And so it was just like, who took this? And there's nothing you could do about it. My younger brother was with us and his friend, they were just like, sucks, dude. This is like a stupid trip. Why did we come on this? And for me, I'm like, this is life. I'm like getting a whole entire other vantage point of a landscape that I could never, ever have access to. And so I I think early on, that's one of my things that attracted me to my uncle.
2: Your uncle died when? He
0: died on May 4th, 2020.
2: Did he know that he was sick?
0: So this is during the COVID-19 shutdown. I'm in New York City. There's sirens going on all the time in Brooklyn. I haven't left my house more than once a week to get provisions or whatever. And then I'm mostly stuck inside and freaking out, but also having all this extra time and trying to figure out what to do with it. Everybody's very stressed out about the situation. And my uncle starts calling me. And we start talking a lot more often during this time in which he makes jokes. If the COVID gets inside my body, there's no way it's going to make it out alive. And we had a lot of funny conversations back and forth about it. He would call me every once in a while to talk about politics a little bit. He was definitely not a fan of Trump, but he wasn't some kind of liberal who was a resistance fighter for the left or anything like that. But he could smell bullshit from a mile away. He hated Fox News. And so he would call me every once in a while and be like, can you fucking believe that they didn't even use the pandemic report from the Obama administration? They had the whole thing there. Fuck, man. And he would go off. And he always called me when he was lit. It was most of the time very fun. The guy was a Tasmanian devil and he spoke a mile a minute. But it started to get pretty rough for him. I don't know what was going on, but he started, I think, using more drugs. I had theories that he was clearly taking some uppers or some amphetamines. He would never ever tell me what he would be on. It was never part of the conversation. So it was more like, we're talking now, let's connect and have a really meaningful, sincere and funny, ridiculous conversation. But all of a sudden he would call me and he would be particularly sad. And I've never really had a relationship with him where he would lean heavily on me because he was the adult or he would have to have a certain sense of pride. And when his cat died this beloved cat named kidders uh, who was like this big black cat that he had in telluride colorado and so he would let this cat out and we're talking like in the mountains there's bobcats out there there's bears and this cat would come home and it would have like gash in its skull and you could tell it got into some kind of like scuffle or something like that and he'd be like kidders so anytime i go up there on a ski vacation with him kidders was there so i knew Kitters and He calls me one day and he's crying and he tells me that Kidder's died. And he is blaming himself because he thinks at this point that he has COVID, that he gave COVID to his cat because he saw it in the news that that somebody had tested a cat and it had COVID-19. Then he started to draw these connections. But while he's telling me these things, I'm intuitively understanding that he's lying to me. He's saying that he has COVID when I know that he probably is just spiraling Out of control. He's in his 60s. I can't believe that he even made it that far. There's a photograph of him from 10 years ago, and it looks like he's 85 years old. It's like a Walter Beckett. He had wrinkles that I didn't know the face actually would produce in certain areas of the cheeks and stuff, like like crossover wrinkles. They weren't crow's feet. They were like dinosaur talons. (laughs) And so he was leaning on this excuse that he had COVID and that he was going down and that he killed his cat, and he was just an absolutely inconsolable mess, about it, and it made me so sad to hear him cry, and and talk to me on the phone about how Kitters was gone. And so the next day he called me and he said, "Look, man, I'm not going to make it." And I'm like, "What are you talking about? Come on, man, you're fine. You've survived a million other things. You're totally going to be fine." He's, "Listen, man, I'd love for you to come out here." And so he's pleading to get me to get on a plane. In the middle of COVID-19 and to come see him. Masks were not mandated on planes at that point. I have an old, an N-100 mask that filters out like 99% of particles from when I was doing some projects in my studio with some poisonous chemicals. And so it's, it's got these two big, hot pink circular things on it. It's very intense. But when he told me that he wanted me to come out there, I knew it was really bad. So I booked the first flight out of LaGuardia and I landed and I just started crying to my face mask and I get out of the plane. I go straight to the rental car. I get in the car and I drive to his place. My mother was so kind. She bought him an apartment, a tiny little space in, the, in Paradise Valley. These apartment complexes are like two stories. There's a little winding concrete path with a couple of cactuses here and there. It's mostly a very sleepy kind of situation where there's a couple of people who are retired. And then there's a couple of tweakers and kids that are in this area over here. And it's generally a very bleak kind of place but my mom bought him the place because he was on the streets for a little while he got fired from his job at home depot where he claimed that he was the king of hardware everybody loved him there but he got fired because he fucking ran his mouth and he said something incredibly insensitive like uh, a a sexist joke that you know came from an era that's like you know you just can't he got canceled basically but he had lost his job and and i He was drinking more, and I know that he was probably doing some drugs. I didn't know exactly what they were, but I used to say that he had a world-class cocaine addiction. And as a kid, I was like, what does that mean? Like, nah, man, you just get a hooker and an eight ball and you have a great night here, whatever. And I'm like 16 years old. <laughs> I'm like, it was just wild. He used to call himself a, a chick magnet from the boneyard. I think it, in the, the obituary, I sort of tried to describe the first draft of it. I was actually throwing in some of these little one-liners he had. He, he had spoken mangled metaphors. Every once in a while, we'd be on a, a gondola going up to the top of the mountain to drop in and do some skiing and pull out a joint. And he'd be like, this shit right here will put your dick in your wristwatch pocket. And it's, what the fuck does that even mean, man? Just like, it may, he's like saying, you know, your dick will jump out of your pants, but then he'd like f- sort of finish it off and it would go in your your pocket watch pocket or something. And I'm like, what? Nobody here has a pocket watch. And so he had this vocabulary. I always found him to be incredibly smart. He was not an intellectual. He's not interested in aesthetics or art history or some of these things that I have spent a lot of my time deeply thinking about whenever I'm in the studio making art trying to make art. So he was the kind of person that he just watched the news a lot and he read newspapers. And so I remember when he had a crash with my parents for a period of time, I don't know what he was going on. He must've been down and out And he must have asked my mother, his sister, to basically live with us. At the time, I think I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And so my younger brother's nine or 10, and the other one's like five or six. So we're all pretty young. And all of a sudden, Uncle Bunky's living with us. And it was like the most insane summer of our lives. My parents, both worked all the time. My father was a welder and my mother was a grocery store clerk. And they both were always at work trying to give us this middle of the middle class lifestyle. And so he had no job and he would just take us in this huge piece of shit car that he called the sled. and It was like a 1970s era Buick LeSabre. It's straight out of Uncle Buck or, or Big Lebowski backfires all the time. There's no seat belts in the back. It's like a one long pleather couch. When we were kids, it was like 10 feet wide. And he would go through the neighborhood and he'd peel around these corners and we'd slide from one end to the other and we'd pop up and down like rocks and a cement shaker. It was fucking nuts. And then we'd hit our heads on the ceiling and my little brother would be like he didn't want to cry because he didn't want to look like a pussy or whatever but you could tell in his eyes that he was scared. And I couldn't reassure him because I didn't know what was going to happen. So he'd take us to the arcade and he'd put his last $20 bill in the machine and all these coins would fall out. like the cup wasn't big enough to hold the coins and it was like some Scrooge McDuck shit. And He'd let us play Mortal Kombat 2. He let us play all the games that our parents wouldn't let us play. And then of course he would say, don't tell your parents we did this. And then we'd come home and we'd roll up and then my dad would be home. And my dad, he was a really highly skilled welder, but he was a blue collar dude. And he was working in the Arizona sun. We come in and he would just chew my uncle Bucky out like, get the fuck inside. We'd all go inside and try to keep a straight face. And then I'd go in my room and I'd open up my blinds and I'd see outside my dad just tearing into him about how you can't fucking do that. This is irresponsible. The kids need to have some kind of discipline or whatever it is. So early on that relationship, he was problematic for my parents because my parents were trying to raise us. And he was trying to show us a good time.
3: I mean, you're doing a great job even remembering all this pure comedy gold.
0: I don't have like a bullet pointed memory of these things. When I start talking about some of them, they start to come out. So the memory of him is, was something hard for me to process after he, he died. I mean, even before he died, I, I was in the car with my brother and I was telling him, and this is my youngest brother who wasn't old enough to experience some of these kind of insane things like dude you know there was this time where mom and dad weren't home and he goes christopher come on outside i want to show you something this is a sawed off shotgun and i'm like holy shit and i had seen terminator 2 and i'm like whoa that's cool this is like a a very illegal thing to have it's designed to be obscured under a coat while you do whatever you're going to do with it so he's telling me that the shotgun is hot i don't know what hot means and then he goes check this out and he pulls out a, a buckshot shell and he empties out all the gunpowder and he goes all right stand back or you're gonna burn your eyebrows off and he just throws a hatch at it and it's like an explosion it's like this white light and it just put this insane stain on the concrete of my dad's driveway my dad was so pissed off about it because uncle Bunky wouldn't have been able to do a good job of cleaning it off so he had to do it himself that kind of shit i was like telling my younger brother this is crazy shit that he used to always do and i'm like wow i forgot about that he knew that i was up for anything and like that that relationship was very symbiotic
2: you, you mentioned your parents had gotten divorced and your dad took you and your brothers to Telluride ride to see him what happened on that trip
0: yeah my dad had some post-divorce vibes going on he was definitely like come on kids let's get in the car we're going to go up and see your uncle Bunky and tell we'll go skiing I, I don't know if my dad reached out to him beforehand or not, or actually spoke with him and said that we were going to come up there. But we arrived, and my dad had gotten this sick-ass condo, like a timeshare or something like that. We were all trying to not think about the family getting split up, and we were excited to see Uncle Bunky. He taught me how to ski, and this guy, I, I'm telling you, like he was the most graceful and fast and Fearless skier. We'd get up at the top of the mountain and he'd be like, All right, little buddy, now you see that little shoots and those narrows. You're just going to pop in there. You're going to hop around a little bit. And when you shoot out, you're going to be a fucking golden. And I'm like, So scared to these things that he wanted me to do. But i you couldn't say no. You know, you jump in and i get fucked up by a tree branch and then I'd just like crash. He'd like get up and he'd be like, That looked awesome. And he would be, so energetic and like supportive. We get up there and we, we just like, my dad's like, oh, I don't know where your Uncle Bunky is. And we're like, what do you mean? I'm like, let's go to O'Bannon's. He'll probably, he's probably at the bar. Like after dinner, we'll go to O'Bannon's. So we're, we're walking down the street and we go to the bar and I asked the bartender. I'm like fucking 14 years old and I'm going into a bar and I'm like, is RJ here? And they're like, RJ? And then like a couple people look over and they're all smoking cigarettes and hunched over cocktails. And, and it's just a weird vibe. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? They're like, where is he? And so we're walking down the street. It's like negative 10 degrees. It's so fucking cold. And... This guy walks across the street. I see his silhouette and he looks like my uncle. I knew that it wasn't him. He was too tall. But I said, RJ. And the guy looks over and I go, Uncle Bunky. He goes, I don't know, man. That guy's holed up in a gutter somewhere. And he walked off. And my dad, like, almost like he wished he could have covered our ears about it. We were there for a whole week and we never found him. And he was clearly in a flop house. He was gone. And so... It was a bummer. We didn't know what to think about it. I we all knew what was going on, but we were also too young to really know what was going on. There were times that show up and he'd be great. You know, he'd be like, he'd be fine. But there were just periods of time throughout the year that he would go into a very dark place. And yeah. there was no darker place than the end when I saw him.
2: When you came back to Phoenix, were your brothers there? Did they get a call to come home too? or what?
0: Nobody knew I was going to come home. And so when I showed up, I went straight to see him. And then once I checked in with him, I figured that I would go and surprise my mother. And so I I called her and said, there's a package outside that they delivered for you. And and she came out and she was very happy to see me. But she was also very sad because she knew why I was there. And she clearly was very upset and thought that something was wrong. I, I think she was in a little bit of, I don't know if denial is the right word, but she was trying not to think about it. And so I was telling her like, look, this is what's going on. Bunky has lived this life that... You would have put another man in the grave a long time ago, and it's not going to end pretty. It's not going to be some situation where he's going to be like, oh, man, I took it way too far against the line and now I got to reel it back and all of a sudden I'm going to start working out and maybe I'll get a job as an accountant or whatever none of that shit was going to happen and so I was trying to warn her in a way that this is going to be a very ugly thing and he's going to crash and burn he's going to put the pedal to the metal it's the only way he knows how to do anything and I don't know if this is like part of her so you know, Christian paradigm but I was like I'm not coming out there to save him I'm coming out there to pay my respects and tell him how much I love him, tell him how much he meant to me. And then I went over to my brother's place where I was going to crash. And when I told them that I think it'd be good if y'all just went over there together. And one of my brothers didn't want to go. And I respected that very much because he is this incredible guy. He's, He's a former Marine. He went to Iraq twice. A lot of those guys that came back from that war grappled with a lot of problems with PTSD, substance abuse, a terrible amount of suicides. And he overcame all of this stuff. He's been sober for, I can't even believe it, two years now or something like that. And it's just an incredible feat from where he came from. And so when he said that he didn't want to go over there, I understood that he didn't want to be triggered, I think, by seeing somebody in the family who had those issues. They manifested themselves in in different ways. I think I have my own issues with substance abuse. They're they're not the same as my brothers. They're not the same as my uncles. The youngest of us, he did come with me. And he was pretty close with Uncle Bunky, but he was almost too young to be involved with a lot of this stuff. So he had a different relationship with him, but he's the one that joined me when we went. I could smell his apartment complex before I even knew where it was. It's just like this, you know, if you have a family member who lives in a trailer park, it's like the smell of cigarette butts and empty bottles and body odor. And it's the sort of latent smell of carpet holding these things, you know? I called his name out because he had the TVs on. If you've ever been around crackheads, there's there's always three TVs on. There's always like a, a cigarette in the ashtray that's still, you know, smoke coming up there's food on the table that has got mold on it that hasn't been taken care of there's empty bottles everywhere then there's of course this this olfactory kind of uh, sensation that brings back these memories of him whenever I'm drinking too much or smoking Mm. cigarettes and my body's like expelling this toxic shit through my armpits and I smell myself I'm like fuck man that's what it is but I called for his name and because he told me before I came he's like do not come in my apartment it's just that you're gonna get COVID if you come in and even though I thought he was full of shit He that he was lying to me and he was covering for his abuse of drugs and substances and all this other stuff i stayed out on the patio this patio is like so like small it's like three feet by six feet it's just concrete and there's a little bit of gravel on the corner and it's a cactus it's like dying and i go uncle Bunky, and i hear him kind of rustling in his room and then all of a sudden he peeks his head out and you look his eyes are so bloodshot his body is the body of an alcoholic at the, mm-hmm. at the end of their life it's just it's I don't even know if I want to describe it. It's just like bloated in areas. It's skinny in some areas. His ankles have got all of these blisters and purple and yellow bruises because his liver is failing him and everything is failing. And he peeks out. He's just, you know, like absolute garbage. And he goes, buddy, what, 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 I didn't even expect to see you here. And then he like shows up and he goes, fuck it, amen. And he sits down on this sofa and pours himself uh, from this handle of shitty vodka and he lights a cigarette. And he's like, oh, what do you think about this COVID shit, huh? And I'm like, dude, are you okay? <laughs> like, What is going on here, man? And I just flew 2,500 miles and you just wanna chit chat? It was crazy. And then he's like, oh, uh, whoo. Man, I'm going down, man. Uh, this is the great gradu, dude. I'm the dirt nap is it's ahead, man. I'm coming in fast. Go get you some Let me go get, get you some stuff. So I I went to the Circle K cuz he asked me to get him a handle of vodka and two packs of Traffic Red 100s and I got him a DiGiorno pizza and some Gatorade and I got him some new sheets, a new pair of pants, like some uh, pajamas and got him the booze cuz I don't think a lot of people were trying to enable him at the end. They thought that they could just like pull these things away from him and sort of switch around or something like that. And I was like, no, man, we're going in. Let's light this up and let's just have a good time. So I said, you know, I got myself a pair of cigarettes and I uh, got myself a six pack and I hung out and he's like, go see your pa- mom and go see your brothers and, you know, come back later. And so I got in the car and I started driving away and I, I got scared. So I turned around and I drove back because I just wanted to make sure that he was okay. And I go over there and he's still got all the TV on and this like this all this noise and everything. And I don't open up the Arcadia door because he's sleeping on the couch. But I remember staring at his chest just to make sure that he was breathing. And he yeah. was. And I didn't bother him because I knew that he, was, he hadn't slept. I know what he was doing now because I got a toxicology port 90 days after he passed away. And they did find methamphetamine in his system and a lot of alcohol. And I even knew that he was probably doing some speed because one day he called me, I'm in New York at like 8.30 in the morning, which is like 5.30 in the morning over there. And he's just making a racket and he's i like, sick and tired of these dishes all over the house, man. I'm not going to clean shit. I'm just going to throw it out. So he goes out to the big dumpster and I can hear him throw a pillowcase filled with dirty dishes into the dumpster. And that's that was his solution to this mess that he had in his apartment. It's just, you tell somebody the story, it's like, oh, that's so sad and terrible. But I can't even explain how funny it is. Like the way he would talk and the way he would describe the whole situation. I was laughing so hard on the Mm. phone. And I was like, I love you, man. I'll talk to you later. He's like, okay, man, I'll talk to you later. I connect with my family and then I go back again. And he's actually starts to look a little bit better. Like, okay, maybe this isn't the end, you know? And the last moment when I saw him, he said goodbye to me. And it's like, he, he needed me to come out there to let go. And the second I left, he just, he let go. And it was, that was it. So it was really beautiful that he asked me to come out there and that I knew that I needed to take that first flight in the morning. It's not like he like hung around for two weeks afterwards. And it was like something that was difficult for my mom to deal with, or she had to do some more, you know, taking care of him or whatever. And then he just, uh, he found the door and that party, it's over. The crazy thing about how perfect it was in terms of him asking me to come out there and say goodbye is that... When I did say goodbye, he was just like a cat going off into the desert. He's like, go, go, man. You just got to go. I tell him how much of a legend he is and how much he meant to me and how much I loved him. And and I didn't even sugarcoat it. I wasn't like, you're going to be okay. And We both understood that that was it. And so I left, got on the plane. I landed at the airport and I took a car home. And I was in a, a strangely good mood because I felt that I did a good thing. I made a very... Difficult decision to go back there to, by risking getting sick, and I felt like I, the timing was perfect. I, I was there to say goodbye to him, and then my phone rings, and it's my younger brother. And he's gone. And it's just like I hadn't been home for more than like forty-five minutes, and he clearly died while I was in the air. And everything about it was just too beautiful, and and sad. And I just you know I went on like a week-long bender. That would have made him proud and wrote so much. <laughs> so he was a very self-aware individual, and I was always attracted to that part of him. And he would always tell us, do what Bunky say, not what Bunky do. And we always did what Bunky did, because he would bring us along. But I think that now, as I got older and I look back on that, it hurt me because he lied to me that he, he wasn't using. He told me that he wasn't using And I knew that that was bullshit. I didn't know what he was doing. I I was afraid that he was doing speed balls, that he was doing cocaine and then shooting up heroin or maybe on some kind of opiates and crushing them up or something, freebasing something. I I had seen him on these trips to He didn't teach me how to do these things, but I observed them and learned them this way. But like, I watched somebody make crack and I watched somebody smoke it out of a light bulb. I I saw those things happen. And also like, he was just like, you can't judge me because it's all out on the table.
2: And was he sort of a cautionary tale in your family of like, I don't want to end up like him?
0: I would get so upset. Hell hath no fury, like the scorn that I would have towards certain family members for talking down to him in front of me and just making him feel inferior, less than something. I don't know where a lot of that stuff came from their side of things. I don't know if it was an insecurity that Uncle Bunky got all the attention or that Uncle Bunky was more exciting and more thrilling. They had to constantly point out the things in which they had defined as failures. Whenever that stuff would shoot across my bow, I would get so fucking upset. Did I, I said something, like, but when you're in the moment, you don't really have the words. And then 30 minutes later, you're like, fuck man, I should have said that thing. I think that would have been such a singer. The other thing is that there was this codependency. They would help him, they would they do his taxes or help him take care of this ticket that he got at the DMV or help figure out how he could pay down some court fees that he had from when he had got a DUI up in Colorado or something. But at the same time, I think they held a lot of that over him as though, you know, that I've helped you on this situation that somehow you need to to be something that you're not. You could tell that it affected him. Those moments when I when I would see his head hang down and he would get sad and he would start drinking more and start doing more drugs or whatever it was he was on. It was, it, he was self-medicating. And I was like, yeah. you know, whenever they did that to me, they were like, don't go backpacking in Europe, because you're just going to get credit card debt. Or, you know, don't move to New York City, because you know, the economy is bad. And I'm like, you guys are absolutely out of your mind. And so it would roll off my back. But for him, it affected him. And when I talked to my mom more and more about what my grandfather was like, who Passed away before I was 10. He he had a a massive heart attack. The guy drank a a fifth of brandy a day and ate a lot of red meat and smoked cigarettes. And family was, was a cliche of this post war American nuclear family. They had so much. Like I saw these old silent 16 millimeter films where they're just like opening up presents everywhere. And my grandmother looks amazing in this beautiful dress. And, and then I see my grandpa in the background, who I didn't really know, of course. He's kind of overweight, and he, he, he looks like there's something off about him. And so when I talk to my mom about what happened in Uncle Bunky's childhood, it, it all of a sudden these, these connections get made for how he was abused as a child. And so he was out of control. Like they would go on these vacations to Hawaii and they would not take him because they knew that they would just be too much for them to handle. They might get kicked out of their hotel or their resort or wherever they were at. And so he would stay behind and of course he would throw these massive parties. And so after I wrote this obituary and blew up I started getting these messages from people who knew him as when they were kids and they were just like, "Man, you're Uncle Bunky. I'll tell you what, dude. I just thought we were going to get arrested and sometimes we did and We snuck into the Yes! concert at uh, the (laughs) Desert Sky Pavilion, and we were on acid, and then all of a sudden, he would piss everybody off, he would just push everybody's buttons, but you loved him anyways. And you start to get this picture of like, I think there were times when he would just run away from home. He'd go up to Christopher Creek, which is this little area where there's a box canyon north of Phoenix. And they'd just get a bottle of Everclear and get a campfire and stay up there for days. And they were like 14 Mm. or 15 years old or something like that. So it's not like he became Uncle Bunky when he was in his 20s or something. He was always a problem to the parents, but he blazed his own trail. That's for sure.
2: So your mom's dad... What did he do for a job? He was
0: a a high up managerial person at American Air. I think it was called American Air back then. So he had access to... Tickets for the family to fly all over the place. So so they traveled a lot. And it was back when you could smoke cigarettes. And they wore suits on planes. And and he had a good paying job. And Phoenix was this place where it was advertised for post-war couples to move. The weather is beautiful. And and you can raise a family out there. And so there was this, this absolute boom of suburbia. They lived on a street where there were like swinger parties. You know, I heard stories. I'm like, Mom, no, I don't need to hear any of this anymore. Everybody was drinking. Everybody was smoking and everybody was partying. But there's just such a a dark side to this part of it, where it's, I think, my grandfather, when he'd get home, he would abuse my uncle.
3: Did he fight back ever? No,
0: he was, I can't emphasize this enough. He was just like such a dove. He was so sweet and nonviolent. He never did anything. He put us in danger, but it wasn't because of something that he was taking out on us or anything. So whatever he was doing to internalize that, it's unfurled in this kind of, love for us as nephews. There weren't a lot of photographs of him because he was so hard to capture because he moved so fast. I have digital photographs of him that are just a blur. And it's his energy is just like fucking off the charts. There's an old note that he wrote to me when he sent me a camera from when he worked at Home Depot. He goes, Merry Christmas, a Depot Black Friday door buster. Totally worth it. Memory card upgraded for your next adventure. If nothing else, you can put it on your bedside table. She'll like that. And then he included like a, a, a quarter ounce of like the shittiest weed. It was just garbage. Amazing. And he goes, a little kush from the un- Uncle Bunky Blueberry Grove. So he had grown his own weed and it was just awful. And I was like, I have to write this stuff down. And those stories, they were threaded into the obituary. But it's weird how all of the memories came back. It was like 10 days, just like of yeah. just, you know, right at five o'clock in the morning. Some of it was fun. I was like, oh my God, that's so funny. And I text my brothers. I text my dad. I remember when he did this, when someone passes away, it connects you with these other people in your life. And it was beautiful. It was great. And I was getting a lot of this down. And then all of a sudden this realization crept up on me that I just, I can't even, I, I didn't ask for it, but it was like, I suddenly came to this intense realization that his death was it just an overdose or a suicide or like a debaucherous life that was catching up with him? But it was all three of those things colliding together. And it was just violent. He looked so awful at the end. And yet he still had his sense of humor. He'd light a cigarette with another cigarette. And he'd be like, I'm ready for the dirt nap little buddy, because you can't leave the party if you can't find the door. Fox News sent me a DM and they were like, hey, can we get that picture that you used of him? And can we get a credit line? No, I was like, no, you can't use the picture. And you should know that Bunky would have told your garbage network to get bent. It was amazing. And it was bittersweet. And it's also upsetting because he didn't get to see any of that when he was alive. He didn't get to have these strangers from corners of the internet comment on this obituary and say things like, I wish that I had an uncle that was like that, or I'm going to try to be a better uncle. And Mm -hmm. this kind of swirl of positivity that was very unpredictable. So I was upset that he never got to see that because when he was alive, people would say, man, you're a fucking Uncle Bunky. Someone's got to make a movie about that guy someday. And so for me to write this obituary through my own lens of him. It's really, like I'm, I trained with a little bit of a broad brush. To keep. He wasn't just my uncle. He was a brother. He was a son. But at the same time, he wasn't just like a regular person. That you could just be like, he volunteered at the community center <laughs> and he loved that bow tie of his or whatever. I think that seeing all these comments and a lot of people were, Making references to this Hunter S. Thompson, quote, Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. Several guys had posted that. And I'm like, my uncle's getting... Compared to Hunter S. Thompson, he's gonna—he's not here to see this. You know, he had, like, no ego. It, like, the least narcissistic person in the world. Like, that's the only way he could have really gone 180% into this kind of personality. He never looked in the mirror. He never checked to see if he was okay. He was just, go. I even had random people on Twitter go, like, I knew your uncle you, Telluride. We once stayed in this old abandoned miner's house, crashing in there. And RJ got up, and he said that he saw a ghost- And it was an old miner and other people who were like, I saw your uncle a couple days before he got fired from Home Depot and he was just the best. He had the best energy. He was so kind and so funny. And I just really wish I could have said goodbye to him. I mean, just for it to kind of reach people that knew him, it was overwhelming actually, like handle it all. I was still in a, in a state where I was very sad and upset about it. And so I couldn't respond to everybody, and I feel bad about that. I have loved this. And then nothing happened for a few days. And then somebody who has like hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter posted it and just said fucking A. Mm. And it got 120,000 likes. And then Vince Mancini of uprocks shared it. And then he goes, Tell us more about this hero. And I just pounded it. 240 characters here, 240 characters here of all these different stories. And they just went absolutely viral. Mm. And that's when all of the New York Post and Daily Mail and a lot of other News outlets started to pick it up because for for a solid day it wasn't about politics it wasn't about this terrible situation that everybody's going through. Whether you lost your job because of all these layoffs or COVID nineteen took a family member, it was like Uncle Bunky was the hero of the internet for the day. He was sixty five. Uh, he was the same age as my father. Dad, when when I was very young, he was a cigarette smoker. He smoked in his house, uh, and brother even got a a burnt mark on his arm from a, from a cigarette that hit him. And and my dad. Turned all that around. He stopped smoking. He stopped drinking. He became a marathon runner, a triathlete. He was a gearhead. He had all these spandex suits and Oakley sunglasses, and he would go on these 150-mile bike rides and be back home by 12.30 p.m., And he was incredibly fit. I remember one time I came home, this is like probably 12 years ago, and I don't tell anybody I'm doing it. You know, I'm like, Uncle Bunky, get my dad, and I go out with my brothers and I take them to a restaurant and they both see each other. And it's just so funny because I know there's so much history between them. You know, Uncle Bunky looks 35 years older than my dad. They're the same age. That picture that was published in the obituary was taken by his childhood friend, Scott Heil, and who I met. A couple of times when we do a hike up Squaw Peak with my uncle. Scott was trying to get Bunky to get clean and get his act together about 10 years ago and taking him on hikes and stuff around uh, Pinnacle Peak on Tom's Thumb. And so he took that photograph of him. And I was like, Did you take that photo like a year or two ago? And he's like, No, man, that's 10 years ago. So he was 55. And I made a portrait of, of my uncle Bunky when I, I just graduated from Arizona State University with a BFA in painting. And I was a member of a co-op in downtown Phoenix where we'd all pay the rent and organize exhibitions. And it was like super fucking awesome for me as like a young artist to get this kind of exposure to the downtown First Fridays thing. And and so I did this show of portraits of friends and family and I did one of Uncle Bunky. And I've got a a suit that's not tailored on because I'm 24 years old or whatever and and having this opening and he shows up and he's wearing like this shirt that looks like he came from a bowling alley and he smelled so awful (laughs) and I loved it so much. And he was so drunk and he was so funny and we took these pictures and he's just so happy to see his portrait. And he goes, who would have thought that someone would want to paint a picture of my, you know, ass or whatever. And he, he grabs my hand in this very loving gesture and we get a picture of us standing in front of the portrait. And everybody is just like obsessed with the way it's painted because there's just so many lines in his face. And it was like the hardest fucking thing. I fucking beat up, you know. Even then he was, he joked about, you know, you're going to have a show on that island out there. And this is two or three years before I decided to move to New York and he didn't refer to it as Manhattan. He wasn't like a person who was like, grabbed my shoulders and said, look, man, you got to get out of here. Scottsdale is a a one horse town. He didn't do any pep talks, but I was like, I'm I'm thinking about moving to New York. Oh yeah, man, I've heard some stories. And he start to talk about stuff that he had like read in the newspaper about Manhattan or his like deep knowledge of classic rock and some seedy shit that was going down in the village or whatever. And he'd never been there, and even when I went and backpacked around Europe. I said, where are you going to go? And I'm like, I think I'm going to go to Croatia with my friend Ben. He's like, oh, Croatia. You know, Dalmatians are from that region. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? You guys go, where else are you going to go? I'm like, I'm gonna, we're probably going to go through Budapest. And he goes, oh, they've got a real kick-ass bathhouse out there. you got to check it out, man. I heard those, those Eastern European chicks, man. There's nothing like a..." When he was living with my parents for a while, I remember waking up every morning before I go to school. And i turned turn the little 13-inch TV on in the kitchen, and I'd make my Eggo waffles. And he'd be out on the porch smoking a cigarette and reading The Arizona Republic. And he would read it from front to back. He was reading all the time. And he probably could have been a really great crossword puzzle solver or something, you know, if he like had an extra moment of time. But he was too busy going to the bars and hanging out with that kind of crew. I think he had an intuitive reaction to a lot of the things that I wanted to do or the things that I... I talked to him about. I mean, he was an intellectual, so I, I couldn't talk to him about things that I was very interested in as a young art history student or something. That stuff kind of was wouldn't have been something that was relatable to him. But the idea that I wanted to just jump and leave home and not look back, because I really left Phoenix with both my middle fingers in the air. I was like, fuck this place. So it's like a form of support that he gave me. But it was mostly just like, go for it, dude. Like my parents were just like, are you sure this is a good idea? You know, I moved to New York when the financial crisis was just about to hit. The first day I started working at the gallery was September 13th. And that was the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed. And I was like, oh fuck, I'm going to get fired and I'm going to have to crawl back with my tail between my legs and I knew that even if I was going to have to do that, the only person that would be cool with it, or that would be like, you could go do it again or whatever, would have been Uncle Bump. I don't know how, where he got that from. And its he wasn't the type of person that would sit down and have a talk with me. It wasn't about that. But it was an intuitive understanding about what each of us needed from it. It's unspoken. That's what makes it even more difficult for me. And I lost that figure because I have mentors who are very you know, articulate about what I need to do in my career or why my art isn't as good as it could be or what that pushed me in certain ways. And he just wasn't like that. But all those conversations that I had leading up to him was just about making each other laugh. Genetics are a weird thing. It's whenever I've had a couple of drinks and I'm around little kids, it's like Uncle Bunky is channeling through me and the kids are shocked. They don't know what to do with you. And they're also like curious and having fun, hang them upside down by their ankles and do something that their parents wouldn't do or whatever. Brilliant it's like certain things come out in me. The way he talks sometimes is the way I talk sometimes, but Mm -hmm. we're just such different people. I'm in New York city as an art dealer and I've got this incredible responsibility as the director of an art gallery. And then I'm moonlighting as a visual artist and I'm trying to make great work and I'm very driven and I'm focused and I, and I have a pretty great work ethic. And he wasn't any of that when I'm like, someone's like, Hey man, do you guys, uh, you guys want to go do this? And I'm like, fuck, yeah, that's a memory right there to make. Let's go do it. And someone's like, well, I don't know if we should do that. I'm like, shut the fuck up, man. Let's go. You know, that stuff just absolutely don't look back and maybe make a mistake and learn from it or just gather these memories and experiences for like they're rooted in my me being tethered to him, you know, mm-hmm. when he was alive.
2: You describe your family members, your aunts and uncles shaming him or, or intervening and trying to get him to go to rehab or you know, watching your dad yell at him in my adulthood, I would get so frustrated with my dad. And I remember vividly screaming at him and really giving it to him before I knew anything about alcoholism or recovery, he would just hang his head. But he also was so loving and so kind. And I remember really vividly, when his mom died, we all went back for the funeral, my dad was famously too drunk to fly. Perfect. And my uncle, who had gone sober at that point, was telling a very quote funny story in front of a bonfire on the farm that they grew up in, in which my uncle or er, was detailing an experience where my dad, as a little boy, you know, they all grew up on this farm in Iowa, accidentally let the pigs out. And that he was sobbing, walking down this dirt road, crying to my uncle, I let the pigs out. And he was recounting this and impersonating my child dad sobbing. And I wanted to push them all into the fire and be like, fuck you guys. (laughs) This is why he's a sensitive angel baby. And also why he's the only person who doesn't say to me, why do you need to borrow $200 because your cat needs to go to the vet. My dad knew what it was like to be shamed.
0: Yeah. Different relationship. I think if it, if I had a parent that, that was like that, yeah, it would probably have been like, you need to take care of yourself or something mm-hmm. have a different kind of dynamic. I mean, even when he went to rehab and my grandmother, his mother was constantly bailing him out, constantly buying him a new car and like giving him cash. But, when, but he had like a fraction of a share of a farm in Nebraska. I don't know what the f- they were doing back in the 60s. We're going to buy a part of a farm and it's going to be a good investment for the kids, like a mutual <laughs> fund or some shit. It was just like a tax nightmare all the time. And I was like, can we just start of this, right? Yeah, my Uncle Bunky gave all of his farm shares up to his nephews and nieces because he knew wow. that he would cash out of it and he would do something bad. So he gave it to all of us. He was still kind of constantly having to tap back into the family war chest. And so I don't know who convinced him to go to rehab, but they set him up at this ranch house. in North. It's like out in the desert. It's like, it's a weird place to go. It's like a nice house, but it's also these separate rooms where other people are there to go through rehab. And his teeth had fallen out. So my grandmother paid to have him go down to Mexico and they get all brand new teeth. So all of his teeth were fake all the way to the end. And he destroyed that set too. He was sitting there and it's like at the end of his rehab session and he's sober and everybody's around. And I remember my grandmother's husband, who's too young to really know who he was. Like, as I got older, I was like, this guy's a homophobic, xenophobic, misogynistic, sexual harasser. Like the guy that was running into this circle was like, I want everybody to go around and talk a little bit about your relationship with your uncle and why you want to see him get sober. And so this, my grandmother's husband's dogging on him. He's like kicking him when he's down and it's backhanded, you know, the way he was pretending to be supportive for him, but it was really just uh, a fucked up insult. And I got so fucking pissed. I was like sitting there. I'm like probably 21 years old in college and I've been drinking and hanging out and I'm like coming out of my shell. Everybody went around and then some people said some nice things, but it was simply like, I just looked over at Uncle Bunky and his head was all down and he just couldn't make eye contact. And I could tell that he was incredibly sad. And all he probably wanted to do was go and get a drink. And I was like, this is fucked up. And I like when I came around to me and I'm like, dude, there's nothing wrong with you, man. You are so great. Like, you know, even if you, you know, go back and you start drinking Again, like it doesn't fucking matter because you don't hurt anybody, you're not a bad person. He hung out with all these like trailer trash grifters who like scam artists. They were constantly this like, what's the next fucking angle to try to shake me down when I'm around my uncle? Like, hey Chris, give me $50, I'll give it back to you tomorrow. I just gotta put some money on the Powerball or whatever. And I'm like, Thank you get that out of my face. Like and so would see through that bullshit. Just, but my uncle never did any of that stuff. He never like hit anybody. He would tease people to the point where he probably could get in a bar fight, but it was mostly because he was getting punched because he was taking it too far. But it wasn't because of like a malicious intent. And so, and the guy that's running the thing is like, uh, shit, you know? Like, <laughs> it's not how I wanted that to go. And then my uncle Buggy just looks at me, and he's like, got this smirk on his face, and I was like, oh, fuck yeah, man, you know?
3: Did he have a love life, by the way?
0: His first marriage was to this woman named Teresa. When they got married, she became my aunt, and I thought she was so hot like she had she had these freckles and it's great energy about her I could tell why they were together but I asked my uncle about her later on he's like oh yeah Teresa that's that was the beginning of the whole entire cocaine thing we're living in Anaheim which is like so close to Disneyland so like my, my uncle Bucky would take us and we'd have the best time he would be like which ride do you guys want to go on and he knew about all these little secret spots to come over here and check out and da 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 I remember one time we needed to go pick him up mom's like go go inside and get him and it was like a weird double wide style trailer park. There was no wheels on these things, but they were like hollow cubicle things that people lived in. And I went in there and it was so dark. It was brown. The the blinds were like a, a plaid kind of a thick like 70s veined mirrors. On the coffee table there was a huge ashtray and there were empty bottles all over the place. There was probably residue of drugs, but I didn't know what I was looking for. And I was just there to get him. And he was over in his bed. And he'd like, he's like, oh shit. Okay, yeah, look, give me a second. I'll be out there in a minute. Go outside. And I was fine to go outside because it smelled so awful inside there. They were, that's where they were living. I heard a story that her father, offered my Uncle Bunky a sum of money to not marry her. He was like, do not marry my daughter. Here's a check for $1,500. They got married in Las Vegas. The picture really like on some ramshackle, tiny little Las Vegas chapel. But they got divorced. And then from that point on, he had these relationships on and off with women. I remember one of them in Telluride when I was staying over there. And she was younger than he was. I don't know if it was a relationship with drugs that she was with him or why they were together. And then there was another person. Uh, she lived in a town called Uray outside of the valley of Telluride. She lived there, they lived together, and I remember I crashed at their place once, and it was like 18 years old. It was so much fun. Like having all my friends with me and didn't have to like take care of anybody. So some guy was staying with them and there was just pill bottles everywhere, and he didn't speak, and he stayed in this room the whole entire time. But we had a blast. I mean, we were just like drinking every night. We'd get up in the morning and do a rail and go to the mountain and do take shots of hornitos. It's not even 930 in the morning. And we'd get on the the chairlift and go up and ski all day long and then go down to O'Bannon's. And you put your sticks and your poles outside and you'd get hammered with these big plastic ski boots on, and it was just the, the most fun thing. There was all these trips. There's just times in my life that are marked by the times that I went to go see him in Telluride. So anytime he was back home in Phoenix, there was like a reason for him to be back home. It's like almost like he had to get away from something. So maybe there was a warrant out for his arrest or something, and he'd come down to Phoenix and just kind of like hole up for a little while and take it easy.
3: Wrap up with the, the last line of the obit. In lieu of flowers, please pay some open bar tab, smoke a bowl, and fearlessly carve out some fresh lines through the trees on the gnarliest side of the mountain. Can you know say anything of your family's reception and, and life and how you feel about being able to tell your own experiences candidly?
0: I wish that I had the ability to write a screenplay or something like that about him. But, and I feel bad because I, my another family member's like, oh, this person died and we need you to step up and write the obituary. Because you're the viral obituary writer. And I, I, Writing is, I think it's one of the most difficult things. I'm a visual that. artist. And so, and so a lot of times when required to write a statement about a piece, I'm like, you can't describe it with words. That's why it's visual. And so I get very... Re- Um, self-conscious and insecure about writing. When this happened, I would wake up in the morning and I'd start crying, sobbing, and I'd be paralyzed. I wouldn't get out of bed. I wasn't eating very much. I was drinking way too much. And then all of a sudden, my mom is like, the mortuary wants to know whether or not there's an obituary to submit. And I was like, yes, absolutely. Let me write something. And I was like, what am I going to do? And I sat there on my computer. I go around on the internet reading other obituaries and I figured this out. And then all of a sudden, I just, you know, a lot of these things that come from a creative place, you can't really force. And so sometimes it sits in your subconscious in a weird space and and you could go through a day not thinking about it and you are somehow working out these issues about how to talk about something, whether or not it's the style you write it in. And all of a sudden, I just sat down one night and it, it was just happening. It was like some murder she wrote thing where I was just like, and like I said, I shared it with two friends who were very familiar with Uncle Bunky. And they were like, dude, this is way too much. There's no way that the the paper's going to publish this. And then at that point, I started sharing it with my family and I was like kind of getting their approval because I didn't want to overlook something that they thought that should be in there. and And everybody was just like, holy shit, man, that's him. When I was reading that, I remembered him. And so yeah, it was one of those rare moments where I felt like, you know, oh, I actually wrote something. And yeah. it would have been fine just at that, you know, like, it, like then it all of a sudden it just went crazy and it went viral. Like he, he was amazing. He was a legend. And like and for me to have that kind of like happen in a way that goes viral on the Internet, it makes me feel very proud. And then also it just I don't know. It's just makes me miss him so much. Yeah, it's funky. Everything's great, man.
1: Everything's fabulous. Love you, little buddy. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Our supervising producer is Chris Gellis. Want to tell us about your father? Follow us and send us a message at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook, or call us at 1-888-318-DADS and leave us a voicemail. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as $3 a month. Also, check out Daddy Issues, our bonus Dads in Pop Culture Patreon podcast. Find it and more at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our mums, Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum.